To create our beer, we really only use these three Czech ingredients plus the unique strain of yeast. And uh, because we still use the same recipe, we keep the traditionals here alive, uh, you know that the Pilsner Arkel beer is truly Czech beer. <laughs> Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure, a podcast looking at unfamiliar places across the world and aspects of travelling you may never have thought of. I'm your host, the Barefoot Backpacker, a middle-aged Enby with a passion for offbeat travel, history, culture and the whys behind travel itself. So join with me as we venture Beyond the Brochure. Hello. I'm aware it's been a while since a standard podcast episode from me. There have been reasons for this, not all of which have been because I've been busy. Well, I have been busy, and that's a really good excuse, kind of. Um, It's ironic, following my previous podcast episode on things I wish I'd known before I started podcasting. I'm not a role model, not in that respect anyway. So, the last couple of months have been very social for me. I started September visiting some friends in Nottinghamshire, back where I used to live, which, on brand, partly involved beer. Off-brand, it did also involve kissing with one of them, which, as an aromantic asexual, is definitely not what I expected. It wasn't what she expected either, but that's all I'm going to say about that. The weekend following, in related life structure, I was heavily involved in the UK Sexuality Conference, an entirely online affair with panel discussions and Discord chats about all different aspects of asexuality. I was on the panel for Aces and Masculinity, and hosted the panel about Aces Over 40. Both of these are available to watch on YouTube so you can see the discussions that we had. It had the potential to be stressful, and of course I did almost no preparation or organisation beforehand, but the panels themselves went absolutely fine. Uh, It helps to have a rock-solid moderator in the background controlling things, of course, who you can off-screen have messages with to plan upcoming questions and ideas. I was also host of an open mic discussion on Discord about child-free aces, but no recording of that was made. It was a really good thing to be involved with. Um, I know asexuality is a niche identity, and that makes it even more important that we have such get-togethers and events, even if they're entirely online, because it's great to know that people like us exist and that we're not, well, broken. Then, the weekend following that, yes, September was a busy month, I physically attended the Traverse 22 Travel Blogger Conference. This is an annual event put on by the Traverse organisation, which aims to bring travel bloggers together for workshops, as well as connecting them with tourist boards and other travel groups. This year's event took place in Brno, in the east of Czechia. I say travel bloggers. In reality, it's a place for all kinds of travel content creators. Bloggers, yes, but also travel writers, vloggers, short-form video creators, photographers, and even a couple of podcasters. There were a few hundred of us in total, and it's always great to meet up, especially with people, you know, you've been chatting to on social media, but you've never actually met them in person. The conference itself took place over the two weekend days and consisted of talks and panels by a variety of speakers on subjects ranging from wellness to street photography, SEO to TikTok, thus covering both practical advice and discussions on far wider topics. Entertainment was also provided and organised for the evenings. On the Friday, we all went to a local event hosted by the local tourist board at Castle Spielberg, the focal point of the city of Brno. 
While there, we had demonstrations of local folk dancing, great views, and lots of regional food and drink, mainly wine. The closing party on the Sunday night was at the Sono nightclub. Nightclub, I know. Yeah, scary, isn't it? Including a demonstration of light painting by Czech artist Lucero, which looks a lot easier than it is in real life, as many people found out later when they tried it. It was great to attend. Uh, It was the first Traverse conference I'd been to since the one in Rotterdam in 2018, before I started this podcast. But my biggest takeout seemed to be not actually travel-related at all. Everybody loved my non-binary stylings, including a couple of people representing the Estonian Tourist Board and my personality, and said that I would absolutely rock on TikTok. I never saw myself as a potential TikTok star, partly because I can't be mithered with video. But then, I guess that's another reason I pay my friend V to look after the admin for me. And, on that note, a couple of weeks ago, we met up and spent the best part of two days making videos that she's going to edit up and issue on either TikTok or YouTube Shorts. In all, we must have done about 20 short videos, each of them under a minute, along with a couple of long-form videos for her own YouTube channel. But my videos were a combination of travel everywhere is interesting type videos, uh, and identity what not to say to an asexual type videos, as well as copies of a TikTok dance, because why not, and a couple of other random things, mostly taking advantage of my dyspraxia. It was reasonably good fun, and we're contemplating launching the video side of my online identity at the start of December, but who knows. So watch this space, I guess. I'm not expecting it to be anything more than a bit of side fun, and I'm also conscious that much of the content there will be absolutely not travel-oriented, but hmm, I'm an envy of many, well, not hats, that's for sure, so let's say many outfits. V was also responsible for making sure that I entered the Traverse Creator Awards, which took place at the very start of November. Just as last year I was nominated in one category, and just as last year I didn't win. But to be fair, this year I did lose to someone who does freelance work for the BBC, so I guess that's pretty acceptable to even be mentioned on the same list as someone like that. Finally, the week after, I was at the World Travel Market in London for two days, where I wandered around in a haze of social anxiety, but still ended up having a couple of really interesting conversations with some of the tourist boards there. I had wanted to go into it with a plan and a proper, confident pitch, but I guess we were you know, a bit pre-distracted by plotting out video content. So the World Travel Market kind of crept up on us silently, and once we realised it was upcoming, it was a bit too late to react. But let me take you back to September. After the Traverse Conference, I didn't go straight back home. Rather, I was whisked away for three and a half days to Pilsen in the west of the country for my very first press trip. Now, press trips are fairly standard for travel bloggers. A small group are taken somewhere by a tourist board or an organisation and given stuff to do, generally for free, in return for their posting content about the trip and the things they do, see and eat on their blogs, pods, vlogs and social media accounts. Sometimes these press trips can raise ethical questions, specifically where some companies and indeed countries pay substantial amounts to bloggers so they can give a positive spin on somewhere or something that, shall we say, needs a bit of an image boost. But that's a subject for a previous pod of mine on influencer ethics. This time, I did not have those ethical issues. It will not surprise you to know that my very first press trip was basically to spend three and a half days being paid to drink beer. Rather a lot of beer. As my friend and fellow press trip attendee Dave, Man vs Globe, messaged me a week before, and he said... 
and just prepping myself for our beer tour of Pilsen, which seems to feature a lot more beer than I expected, despite it being a beer tour. This is a man who used to work for a brewery. If even he was a little concerned, what hope would I have? Anyway, this episode, the first after my unexpected and unplanned hiatus, will be all about beer, as will the next one, because I seem to have a lot of content. I was originally going to do one pod about both beer in general and then talk about my press trip to Pilsen, but on writing it, I realised the press trip alone worked as a pod. Plus, of course, it being a press trip means I have a certain accountability that I don't normally have, so people will be more interested than usual in my talking about it. So on that note, let me take you to Pilsen and talk about how I drank beer for three and a half days and didn't catch Covid. So, the first task was to, well, you know, meet up with the tourist board rep at Burno Railway Station on the Monday morning. There were quite a few press trips taking place, covering pretty much most of the country. Ours had four people on it, me and Dave, and then Jason and Carla, predominantly YouTubers from the USA. Other trips were going to places like health spas and mountain scenery explorations and old castles. We, I mean, it's not that anywhere we were going to was ugly. I'm sure there is a Czech equivalent of Basingstoke, but we weren't going there. But our whole trip was to drink beer. Everything else was a secondary benefit. Anyway, we caught two trains. Firstly, a long intercity train from Brno to Prague, comfortable with a wide aisle and a decent amount of legroom. And then a smaller, more regional train from Prague to Pilsen, eventually destined for Munich. It's sometimes quite weird, you know, for me, who lives on a self-contained island and therefore crossing an international border is an event, to contemplate that another country is, you know, just a short hop away for many people. And yet... I've crossed many borders, mostly legally. But that, again, is a tale for several previous episodes. Pilsen is the fourth biggest city in Czechia, after Prague, Brno and Ostrava, with just under 170,000 people. This puts it as a similar size to, in the UK anyway, Wokingham or Chelmsford. Bit bigger than Reading, bit smaller than Basingstoke. None of those places are really comparable, though. After all, none of them have ever had a football club reach the group stages of the European Champions League. Even if Victoria Pilsen didn't set the competition alight this year. Though they did better than Glasgow Rangers, much to the assumed amusement of the people in my tenement block. But I digress. Obviously. There's been a settlement at Pilsen since the very end of the 13th century. And... It spent much of the next 700 years being on the front line for many European wars, including a huge siege in the Thirty Years' War and being a target for Allied bombing in World War II. Indeed, the Pilsen area was, much to the subsequent communist government's chagrin, one of the most easterly cities liberated by the American forces in that war. It lay at the end of General Patton's Liberty Road march through Europe, and there's a museum dedicated to him and that whole theatre of war located in the city centre. And furthermore, at nearby Rocky Kearney, there is an outdoor museum of tanks and other military hardware, just under 200 different pieces, including an anti-aircraft gun, located on the demarcation line where Patton's troops met the liberating Red Army advancing from the east. You can hire a genuine World War II tank for the day for a few grand, and many filmmakers do just that. Also at that museum is a large indoor area taking you through the preparations for and activities in World War II, complete with displays, dioramas and a couple of interactive exhibits. But back to Pilsen itself. One of the more important industries in the 20th century was vehicle manufacturing, with a large Skoda factory having been built in the suburbs. The company was actually founded by Emil von Skoda, who was born in Pilsen in 1839. In World War II, this was requisitioned for war work. Skoda built tanks, yes. 
And despite this, the old town has survived remarkably well. In fact, it reminded me a bit of many cities in Poland with its huge main square and side streets of large pastel-shaded buildings. A lot of the streets are cobbled, which adds to the medieval charm of the place. There's a very small remainder of the old city wall, which was cast down and replaced by a wide promenade of garden that separates the old town centre from the burbs, which seems quite radical, but what it means nowadays is that there's a nice strip of parkland surrounding the city centre, which makes it feel more open and green than most cities you might visit. The central square, one of the largest in Czechia, surrounds the cathedral and is a wide space used for markets and, on my visit, at least one political rally. It's always weird to hear political groups meeting and enthusing in a language that I don't know because it's never clear if I should be energised or angered that they're there. On three of the corners of the square are water features with what at first appear to be sculptures of Greek letters. The fourth in the northwest corner has a Marian column, a statue of the Virgin Mary atop a large pillar, which is quite common in Central Europe. But in this case, this particular statue was built to give thanks that not everyone died in one of the 17th century plague academics. Our guide wasn't quite sure why the water features were there, but research brings up that they're called Zlata Klajna, or golden fountains, and their representations of parts of Pilsen history and culture. Highly stylized, it must be said. One is an angel, one is a camel, and one is a greyhound. Apparently. They were installed in 2010, and public opinion of them has been... mixed. The greyhound is apparently an old symbol of faithfulness to the Catholic Church and to the Czech king, while the camel refers to a story that during one of the many wars, a sieging army had a camel which the Pilsen defenders pinched, didn't know what to do with, and I believe, after the war, gave it to the King of Poland. Quite how and why the besiegers had a camel in the first place is not recorded. As an aside, the Pilsen city logo is... I'm going to go with hard to draw. Most places take a couple of historical aspects or symbolic representations, add a few colours, and there we go. Pilsen seems to have gone with the principle of, well, that's important, let's stick it in. It contains, amongst other things the aforementioned greyhound and camel, papal keys, a knight in armour, a black eagle, half of, a representation of the Pilsen Charter and a golden cross, and a poleaxe, and an olive branch. For a country with one of the lowest levels of religious belief in Europe, a Gallup poll in 2009 found only 21% of Czechs felt religion was important to them, while a 2019 Eurobarometer poll found 56% of Czechs define themselves as either atheist, agnostic or a non-believer, they have quite a religious historical culture. But a conversation that we had in the cathedral suggested the reason was exactly this. Being on the front line of the historical European religious wars throughout the centuries has turned Czech culture away from the whole concept of religion. Also in the square, by the way, are a couple of statues of famous Czech puppet characters, and I'm going to pronounce this wrongly, Spejbel, it's S-P-E-J-E-B-L, and Hervinek. While on the side of the cathedral, behind a gate, is an angel which people touch a statue of and make a wish. This isn't a touristy thing either. We saw many locals go and silently touch the statue. At one point, there was even a small queue forming. The cathedral itself is dedicated to St Bartholomew, and it's the seat of the local bishop. Compared to the surrounding square, it feels weirdly small, although apparently that's always been the way it's, it was built that way. Um, it was built in the 14th century, but it's been repaired and reconstructed a bit several times since then. It's quite a pretty, if standard, cathedral. You know, high ornate ceilings, vibrant stained glass windows and an imposing altar. You can climb to the top of the cathedral tower. 
At just over 100 metres tall, it's the highest in the Czech Republic, and the climb definitely feels like it. It's a weird set of staircases. Some of them are stone, some of them are wood, some of them are curved, some of them are steep and straight up, almost ladder-like. It's a bit of variety. From the top, you can see pretty much the whole city, including the main sites such as the Skoda factory and the main brewery, and out to the hills beyond. It's not the only important religious building in the city centre. Nearby is the Great Synagogue, a much more relatively recent affair, dating from the boom years in the decade either side of the turn of the 20th century. It's the second largest synagogue in Europe, allegedly, able to hold more than 2,000 people, and with twin towers rising to around 45 metres tall. Note that the current Jewish population in Pilsen is around 70, for obvious reasons. It's an odd-looking building, architecturally. It's defined as neo-romantic, but it's got an Arabic flavour, while the towers have odd domes on the top that hark more towards Eastern Orthodox Christianity. While still owned by the Jewish community, the synagogue is mostly used these days for concerts and exhibitions. Other buildings dating from the same period include a theatre, a couple of museums and a hotel. Indeed, much of the city centre around and just beyond the site of the old city wall was built around this time, a plethora of what I've been told are Art Nouveau and Neo-Renaissance structures. I know very little about architecture. Now, my description of Pilsen is more than just scene setting. It's not just that the city is a pretty background to the manufacture and drinking of beer, which is, you know, why I was there, but also that beer itself is an important and integral part of the city. Beer has been brewed here for pretty much as long as the city itself has existed, initially by monks in a nearby abbey, but it wasn't long until the inhabitants of the city itself were brewing. All those pastel-shaded buildings that line the main square and the surrounding streets, they would all have been licensed to brew beer. Now, many of them merely stored and sold it, but still, with so many nano-breweries, one imagines a pub crawl in the 18th century would have been quite an achievement. In fact, in a very literal sense, Pilsen is a city built on beer. See, under the old town are a connected series of cellars deep underground. They were used to source water for beer making and store barrels in cold conditions while being readied. They were originally mined out in the 13th to the 14th centuries, and while some have subsided and flooded, much of it is still usable even today. In the old days, the houses above had cellars which opened out into these passageways, which of course was convenient when every house was at least a pub, if not itself a brewery, but these days they've all been blocked off. Uh, the passageways cover around 20 kilometres in total, uh, but only a few hundred metres are open for tourists to visit. They're mostly narrow with relatively low ceilings. You're obliged to wear a hard hat, and it's not really a place for anyone that suffers from claustrophobia. That's it, they're not that dark, and you can always see where you're going. You can see several of the wells used to draw water. This, plus the several rivers around the city, made it historically a very difficult place to siege. And there's evidence of this in the underground as well, with cannonballs, catapult shots and other objects from that era on display. There's another advantage to the easy access to the water, but I'll come on to that a little bit later, although it shouldn't surprise you to know what it is. Um, what else? The tour, oh yes, the tour. The tour through the caverns ends at a large water wheel underneath a water tower. Part of the old waterworks, obviously, that were built in the 1530s and rebuilt and extended in the 1840s. Also in the caverns are displays of objects showing general life and culture in previous centuries. These include examples of glassware, pottery and tiles from previous centuries, an overview on the importance of provisions of merchant guilds, and the tools that show how the caverns were dug in the first place. Above the caverns is the Beer Museum. This takes you on a quick overview of the history of beer in general, and in Pilsen in particular. 
While some of the individual information signage is merely labels rather than descriptive, this is rendered less of an issue by the fine displays and dioramas that make it clear what you're looking at. There's examples showing a variety of 19th century brewing equipment from boiling to bottling and even devices to check the quality of the grains. There's also a fair display of old style beer bottles, which, let's be honest, had a bit more style than modern typefaces and bland imagery. There's even a recreation of a 19th century bar, albeit behind a screen, so no, you can't order a beer from it. There's also a lot of ephemera around the practice of beer drinking, from historical tableware to information about coasters and bottle tops. Did you know, for instance, in the 1700s, beer came in three sizes here? A mug was about 500ml, a pint was obviously 1.9 litres, and um, a bucketful, which was 46.5 litres. Bit much for a night out, I think. I won't be asking for one of those in the pub. Now, at this point, I should probably need to point out just how important beer is to the Czechs. It is the country with the highest beer consumption per capita in the world. It's about 140 litres per year, twice as much as the UK and some 30 litres ahead of second place Austria. It's not just that the Czechs like beer, it's more that the whole concept is central to Czech life. Whereas in other countries you might meet in a cafe or at someone's house for a coffee or a tea, in Czechia you go to the pub and drink a beer together. And there's lots of pubs in the country, it's almost like being in the UK, but bear in mind that the UK has almost seven times the population. With specific regard to my adventures though, the reason why the press trip to sample Czech beer I was on went to Pilsen is not just because the city is built on beer, but because the style of beer that the city is famous for is one of the most popular and important beer styles in the world. I'm sure you've heard of Pilsner, a type of hoppy bitter lager served in almost every pub and bar in the world. This is where it comes from. Before I talk about it though, it's important to note there's different ways of serving beer, specifically Pilsner, in the Czech Republic. The standard way is known as chladinka, which is Czech for level. It's tapped in one go around a 45 degree angle and leads to a glass about three quarters full of lager and one quarter foam on top. The principle behind it is that the foam protects the beer below it and prevents it from going flat and stale too quickly. I mean, this is an alien concept to me, as most of the beers I normally drink in the UK are flat by design, but then most of the beers I normally drink in the UK are not lager, so, you know. Another popular way of serving beer is snit, or cut, which is similar to the hladinka, except the proportion of foam to lager is, it's a bit closer to 50-50. In Czech culture, this fulfills the same function as we'd have a half in the UK. Either we just need a quick drink, or we only want a taster. There's also a style that's almost completely foam. This is the mliko, the Czech for milk, and it's named because when in the glass, it looks similar to a glass of milk. The idea is that you drink it all in one go, although I'm not convinced texture-wise that I could. Compared to the other types of presentation, it's very smooth and sweet, and is seen as the oh-but-I'm-driving drink, given its low volume of actual beer. Although here note that the drink-driving laws in Czechia are somewhat strict. There's no tolerance at all, and you're not allowed to drive with any alcohol in your system at all, completely. It was also traditionally seen as a woman's drink, although hopefully those attitudes are disappearing. The final style is almost the opposite of Mliko. This is the Choktan. This seems to mean neat, as in neat and tidy, and is occasionally known as the British style. I feel attacked. Anyway, it's served with as little foam as possible, ideally none at all. Without the foam on top it goes flat quickly, but it does mean that you can drink it quickly without the foam getting in the way, and it's said to be refreshing. It must be said, I never saw anyone pour this. 
unsurprisingly, the vast majority of the logs that I had on this trip were of the Hladinka style. Anyway, the major producer of Pilsner Lager is Pilsner Urkel Brewery, and we were given a tour of the brewery plant as part of the press trip. Now, as you might expect, the brewery is huge. Some 11 million hectolitres are brewed per year, and they can package up to 120,000 litres in bottles, 60,000 cans, and 18,000 larger, talking one and a half litre, kind of growler-sized bottles. Per hour. The whole factory vibes like a small town. There's a reason why the tour takes a couple of hours. The tour begins in the main reception area, some of which is decorated in the style of a traditional old-fashioned public house. It's only a facade, but certainly later on in the tour, you do get to sample a beer, obviously, because what would be the point of going to brewery and coming out dry? Also in the reception area is a motorbike with Pilsner decals, which was designed locally and is very bespoke. It's one of two designed in the style of an actual Pilsner Urkel beer, and they're both fully functional, perfect for those beer-loving bikers amongst you. I know a couple. Also in the area are a cabinet of wards the beers of one, as well as some of the original paperwork from the foundation of the brewery itself. Outside the main entrance is a cobblestone road that leads deeper into the brewery complex, passing the original brewery building and the 50-metre water tower, built at the start of the 20th century to provide water to the expanding businesses. This may be related to the water tower that you see in the underground caverns, or at least possibly. It's hard to judge when you're a couple of hundred metres underground. Also outside are a couple of rail sidings with old wagons, branded and originally used to transport Pilsner products around the city and beyond. Back inside takes you past the raw ingredients for beer, the malted barley, the hops and the yeast, which when combined with the water make the beer. They're all regionally grown from this side of Czechia, and the volume and type are particular to Pilsner Urkel. The yeast, specifically, is specially protected. Samples are kept protected in temperature-controlled vials in several spots around the world. I'll come on to the factual aspect of beer making in a future pot, just to say it's not divine magic, even if it sometimes feels that way. You can sample the malt and hops if you like. While the malt has the vibe and texture of muesli, raw hops, the best way I can describe the taste of raw hops is that it's a bit like chewing on a hemp bag. It's dry, it's textured, stringy, slightly limp, and takes about 10 minutes to get the taste out of your mouth. I'd not recommend it. And then you go through to the brew houses. In 2004, they moved their brewing operation into a new building, for space and size reasons. However, the actual setup is pretty much identical. What you have is a series of copper kettles and mash tuns where the malts are mixed with boiling water. And, well, the phrase is mashed, which, to be honest, is also what happens if, you know, if you drink too much of it in one go. Essentially, it breaks out the sugars in the malted barley, which later go on to ferment into alcohol. Pilsner Urkel do a process called triple mashing, which basically means any match of proto-beer goes through this process three times, which I understand makes the beer darker, slightly stronger, more bitter, and smoother in the mouth. Most breweries don't do this, but then most breweries don't have a huge setup, and less time pressure means that they can afford to. When you walk into the room with the copper kettles, by the way, due to their size, number, and their look, they have pipes going off into the ceiling, and their lids are rounded, shiny and smooth, it feels a little like you're surrounded by sleeping creatures from a dodgy 1970s sci-fi series. When I stood next to them, the top of the lid was above head height, and I'm not exactly a small envy, and they're pretty much circular, so they're just as big all the way around. After passing by a couple of the exhibits on the people that make the beer what it is today, including portraits of all of the head brewers from 1842, the tour goes underground into the beer cellars. This is where the fun begins. 
Again, as a tourist, you only see a very small part of the complex, which stretch in total for about nine kilometres and lie around 15 to 20 metres under the town. But even what you do get to see is still you know, quite a bit. The passageways are quite wide, understandably so, as they were used to store beer barrels in cold conditions to let the beer mature and condition. This was done through not just the fact the cellars were naturally cool anyway, but also with the addition of large blocks of ice. These days their usual production is held instead in large cryotanks, but even so the passageways still smell of damp and the sound of dripping and running water is never too far away. I say their usual production. Down here in the cellars they still maintain some huge oak barrels for the original fermentation process. Partly this is done for the tourists, yes, but it's also mainly as a comparison to make sure that regardless of what changes they make to the production of the beer in the factory, the beer itself tastes the same as it's always done. So by continuing small batch production of beer in the traditional way, and because they use the same makeup of malts, hops and yeast for both, they can easily tell if something they've done process-wise has affected the taste of their beer. And of course, one of the highlights of the tour is at the very end, where you can sit at a table in the cellars and drink it pretty much straight from the tap, traditional, unfiltered, unpasteurised. Pilsner Urkel exactly the way it would have tasted when the brewery first produced it in 1842. And it's pretty good too. I mean, I'm not a lager drinker, but this was lush. A very smooth, sweetly caramel, very bitter and refreshing, completely unlike other lagers I could mention, but won't. Incidentally, Pilsner Urkel are one of the few breweries left in Europe who make oak barrels by hand in the traditional manner, which is one of those trade secrets passed down from master to apprentice. Currently, they employ eight barrel manufacturers, or coopers, yes, that's the origin of the surname, and the barrels they make range from 17 litres for transportation to 4,600 litres for storage. The latter can weigh up to 800 kilograms, making them rather awkward for taking home with you. Now, two questions I've not answered yet are, why here and why then? Why is Pilsen traditionally such a huge beer city, and why did one brewery take over so comprehensively? And while you'd have thought the answer was capitalism, you'd actually be wrong, sort of. The city stands where several rivers merged to form the Burunka River, which joins the Vlatava near Prague. In addition, the town itself has a number of natural springs and the water tables not too far down, meaning it was, as we saw earlier, easy to dig wells to access fresh water. Importantly, though, regardless of origin, the water here is primarily quite soft. That is to say, it contains a much lower concentration of dissolved minerals, thus tasting more pure and being easier to flavour. Uh, this part of Europe also, in addition, is a great place for growing barley and hops, the two important ingredients in beer. And this goes some way to explain why, not long after the foundation of the city, the local monks set up a brewery here and why the populace followed not long after. However, just because you can doesn't mean that you should. Although a lot of nanobreweries existed in the city, their quality was variable and dubious, because the average citizen isn't a brewer by trade and didn't have the know-how to make beer consistently well. For a city that prided itself on beer, this was an important consideration. The final straw came in 1839, when a brewed batch was so bad that 36 barrels of it were, allegedly it must be said, poured out over the town square, presumably in protest. The town council decided that enough was enough and brought in an external consultant, Joseph Grohl, a brewer from nearby Bavaria. Remember, Munich's just a short regional train ride away and the border with Bavaria is closer than Prague. He was tasked to use his experience to create a decent brew in the city and by gum he succeeded. 
Even though he only stayed in charge for a couple of years, his legacy was immense, and from there on in, there was only one beer in town. Grohl, by the way, is completely unconnected with Grolsch, a Dutch brewery dating back to the early 1600s, although weirdly both are, at the time of podding, owned by Asahi Group Holdings Limited. I say only one beer in town. That's obviously not true. Even here in Pilsen, microbreweries exist, and as part of the press trip I was on, we got to experience several of them. Turns out Dave was right. Firstly, though, two caveats. Although microbreweries tend to be more flexible and experimental with their brewing than large macrobreweries, this is the Czech Republic, and even a nanobrewery I'd visited back in Brno, Effie Brewery, uh, had said that around 80% of their beer output was a variant of Pilsner Lager. The microbreweries in and near Pilsen may be numerous and quirky, but even they know what their audience looks like. The other caveat is that the first microbrewery visited in Pilsen yeah, technically isn't one. Proud Brewery is located in the old power station on the Pilsner Urkel site, a short way behind the larger brewery, and 100% owned by it. That said, it operates independently and is largely used as a way for the parent company to experiment with styles and tastes that would be very off-brand and out of place under the Pilsner Urkel name. The name of the Proud Brewery comes from its location. Proud is a Czech word that means current, as in electricity, and water, and being sited in an old power station where two rivers meet makes it a logical name to have taken up. Anyway, as a sub-brand, it's quite a large and elaborate affair for a microbrewery. They're renovating the old control centre of the power station, which would make a great place to put tables and drink on site, to be honest, although it'd be a shame to remove the original tiling and the now very retro control panel halfway down. But that room itself is bigger than most microbreweries I've visited. Also in that room, next to a platform on which there are four steel beer tanks, are a crucifix and bell. These seem to be a traditional religious theme that breweries have to protect themselves from other kinds of evil spirits. But these specific ones have been blessed by a passing Pope, who was also given a batch of proud beer, which I guess makes it count as holy water. The main brewing area is relatively large for a small brewery too, although research hasn't revealed quite how large. Suffice to say they have enough capacity to produce quite a few beers at any one time, and also spirits. On our visit, we were given samples of a number of beers they produce, showing too the variety of their experimentation. Of course, we had the Pilsner style lager, but also a red ale with cardamom and black tea, which was sweet, spicy and earthy. A plum sour beer, which definitely tasted plummy. I'm otherwise not fond of sours that much. Hmm, come on to that. A West Coast IPA, which is dry, hoppy and tropical, because that's what they are. And a smooth chocolate coffee stout, which was very dry and quite smoky. According to the notes that I made at the time, I definitely preferred the stout, obviously, because I like dark beers, but also that red ale, because it was quite unusual. A more standard microbrewery we visited was Raven, based behind a bar restaurant. We ventured into the brewery itself, which was a much smaller and more crowded and intimate affair, with the soundtrack of heavy metal, being led by Philip, an Australian immigrant with a passion for beer. By much smaller, what I mean is that it was two or three rooms behind the restaurant, and, as I say, it was felt quite intimate, felt quite crowded, even though there were only about six of us in there. They also produce a wide range of beers, and given Philip's background, they tend to be more English in styles. You know, think typical IPAs and American pale ales. They are also, however, quite fond of their sour beers, much to my hobbeer's delight. We ended up sampling six beers here, and by sample, I mean, it was more than a shot, probably similar to what you might find in a beer flight. These included a very hoppy and tropical IPA, another fruity and vibrant IPA, and four sours. A lemon one, a passion fruit one, an orange one, 
and a quite peculiar one called Brutal Lime and Salt, that is genuinely its name, that did exactly what it said on the beer vat. That said, drinking that did confirm that it is specifically tequila that I dislike. The brewery has been around since 2015, but in that time has shot up in popularity, having been mentioned in beer literature as amongst the best beer to try in Czechia, as well as proving very popular on the beer app Untapped. They also give back to the wider world. They have a partnership with animal charities. So, for example, one of their beers at the time of my visit was a Tasmanian IPA. And for every beer sold, they donate to a charity in Tasmania that looks after injured Tasmanian devils. The last microbrewery visited in Pilsen itself, but not the last microbrewery visited, was Perkmister a quite large microbrewery, over 150,000 litres per year, which apparently makes it the second biggest brewery after Pilsner Urkel, but I don't have any information on the capacity and output of Proud. On site, there is also a restaurant, a hotel and a beer spa. We did not go in the beer spa. In addition, the brewery is one of the oldest in the country, or at least traces its heritage back that way, to 1341, when beer was first brewed under that name in the town of Domaslice, which is 50 kilometres southwest of Pilsen and very close to the German border. That brewery seems to have closed in 1996, and this microbrewery sprung up some time later, brewing beers to the same recipes. The brewery is partly visible from the restaurant, or at least a couple of the beer tanks are, but the majority of it is in a large room behind. Now, by this stage of our trip, we'd seen a lot of the inner workings of breweries, and there's only so many times you can look at something and go, ooh, that's a beer kettle. That said, it's interesting to compare and contrast the different breweries in terms of layout and size and the way they present. Perkmister felt much more open plan than Raven and the FE Micro Nano Brewery I'd visited in Berlin a few days earlier, and they because they were more subdivided into different rooms. So we sampled their beers, but not from the tap directly for a change, but in the attached restaurant over a chef cooked meal. I have a feeling I had a rabbit with potatoes, but obviously you're more interested in the beer. I had a flight uh, six by 100ml of their beers, including the standard lager, a more malty and slightly sweeter version of the standard lager, a malty chocolatey beer, a lemony IPA, a vice beer that tasted of lavender, and what seemed to be a non-alcoholic beer that tasted entirely of malt. It was very odd, and that's all I really needed to say about that one. If that had been the end of the press trip, it would have been a great experience and introduction to Czech beer. However... It was not. There was one more full day to come. Some 20 kilometres south of Pilsen is the small town of Nepomuk. This is home to the Zlata Krava Brewery, Hotel and Wellness Centre, and where we spent the last night. Zlata Krava, by the way, means golden cow, and many of their beers are cow-themed in name, at least. The rooms in their hotel are named after their beers, so I was in Choco Cow, a beer that sadly wasn't being brewed at the time of my visit. Now, again, we had a quick tour of the brewery itself, which was pretty much looking at large metallic vats of beer and going, ooh, let's sample that. Again, it's not a big brewery, but they do make a large range of beers. Aside from the obligatory Pilsner-style lager, we had a smooth hoppy Merzen, a March beer, a German style of brown-coloured lager, a newly brewed orange pale ale, a strong sweet stout that had the vibes of red wine, an American pale ale, an IPA, and a lemony cream ale. But we were here mainly for the wellness, which, let's be honest, is a statement I never thought I'd be saying. And by wellness, I mean the hotel has an on-site spa and sauna, and we had a couple of hours exclusive use of the facilities. It may not be surprising for you to hear, but I'd never been to any kind of spa resort before, so this was all new to me. 
I started in the hot tub, a large pool of water like a, you know, hot tub you'd have at home or a jacuzzi, where we could just chill and relax. It was next to a sauna room, which I opened the door of and realised I couldn't breathe. Next to the hot tub were a couple of small foot spa and stone massage tubs, which were very refreshing. Videos will be available on my OnlyFans, obviously. A couple of rooms away was the Finnish sauna. Uh, this was a room with a wooden fire pit where you poured water on to make steam. This was quite intense, and I realised the further up you sat, the hotter the atmosphere got. I'm also not quite sure what the difference was between the Finnish sauna and a normal sauna room, other than I could actually breathe in the Finnish sauna. Neither came equipped with long twigs to beat yourself with, nor snow, though I imagine in the height of winter, snow would be easily available. What little we saw of Nepuuk and its surrounds suggested it's good hillwalking and hiking territory. It would also be a really cool place to base yourself for cycling trips, if two wheels float your metaphor. All this, though, was preparation for the main event, the beer spa. Yes, we went there. So, in a room, there's four metal tubs filled with beer, or at least proto-beer. We're talking yeasty, hoppy, malty water and herb extracts. At the side of each tub was a tap from which you could pour your own beer, the standard Pilsner-type lager, but hey, it counts. And then you can just relax in the beery water and drink to your heart's content. The upside is, well, beer. And it's very relaxing. The downside is my crop top and leggings stank of beer all evening, and all the way on the way home. I think we were then there for just under an hour, chatting and playing silly games. I mean, yeah, you're in your own tub, but you can see the other tubs from where you're lying. It's not a place for privacy, but rather it feels very much like a group event. So it's almost certainly better to go along with people you know for the best experience. I'd imagine it'd be quite embarrassing to be there with strangers. A couple of technical points about beer spas. To fill up a tub takes between 30 minutes and an hour, and the beery water inside is kept at a temperature in the mid-30s Celsius, similar to the temperature I have for my showers and slightly colder than my friend in Sheffield's hot tub. They're supposed to be good for the skin, given the high levels of vitamin B in the proto-beer, and one of the reasons that the beer tap is next to the tub is because you officially need to stay hydrated. And what better to stay hydrated than with beer? I know there's a flaw in that argument. I'm not arguing. You're also supposed to take a 20-minute rest after stepping out the beer spa, which gives you more time to rest and drink beer in your room, I guess. Indeed, in the rooms at the hotel was a beer tap, so even once you've gone to bed, beer is still easily accessible. Incidentally, the first beer spa was, of course, set up by the Germans in 1997. The first in Czechia followed in 2006 in Chirova Plana, which is a small town near Pilsen, obviously. I never did get the hang of the force of the beer taps, though, so everything I poured had a lot of foam. One might even say, I give good head. What? Well, that's about all for this episode. Join me next time when I do another podcast about beer. I promise you, I'm not turning into a beer blogger, because, you know, I just want to enjoy beer without having to worry about it and worrying about how to talk about it. It's just that it seems there's a lot to say about it. Until then, Nesdravi. And if you're feeling off colour, keep on getting better. Thank you for listening to this episode of Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, don't forget to leave a review on your podcast site of choice. Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure was written, presented, edited and produced in the Glasgow studio by the Barefoot Backpacker. The theme music is Walking Barefoot on Grass, bonus by Kai Engel, which is available via the Free Music Archive and used under the Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International License. Previous episodes are available on your podcast service of choice and show notes are available on my website, barefoot-backpacker.com. 
If you want to contact me, tweet me at rtwbarefoot, email me at info at barefoot-backpacker.com or look for me on Instagram, Discord, YouTube or Facebook. Uh, don't forget to sign up for my newsletter and if you really like what I do, you can slip me the cost of a beer through my Patreon in return for access to rare extra content. Until next time, have safe journeys. Bye for now. Thank you.